You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Colin McFall, who is using Django and Python to build a social hiring platform for the food and beverage industry. Colin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really excited to be talking with you. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Yeah. Um, so my name is Colin McFall. Um, I'm a somewhat soft, uh, self-taught developer. And for the past uh, eight, nine months, I've been working on building Industry Link. Um, it's a hiring platform for the food and beverage industry. And so I kind of like I had taken classes um, in like high school and things like that and kind of messed around with Code Academy for a while. Um, but it wasn't really until like the past uh, two or three years that I kind of really uh, started to understand how to actually like put syntax into uh, projects. And so um, it was while I was working at a startup that was also using Django that I really understood like how databases were laid out and how that worked. And so uh, kind of for the past uh, two, three years have been learning all about Django and kind of putting things into place. And this is kind of like my biggest first kind of production app uh, with Industry Link. Nice. Yeah, isn't it fun how it goes like that, where it's like, okay, well, learning a little bit about HTML, and then, oh, by the way, there's CSS and JavaScript and Django and Python and databases and caching and, like, deploying to production. Like, <laughs> it's that rabbit hole that never ends. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the biggest hurdle for me was going from, what, like, understanding how databases were laid out. Because uh, I remember, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the tool like Airtable, um, but it's like a relational database tool that you can kind of visualize things. Uh, and I remember putting together uh, when I first started, like this home, it was a real estate company that I was working for, like a home inspection tool. And like the way I had laid it out was just completely not how you would lay out a data database. And I was so proud to, it was like the first thing that my boss asked me to do. And I was so proud to show it to him. And uh, he looked at it and was like, wait, what is this? Uh, and kind of from there, understood how databases work. And once that clicked, Django and everything else made a lot more sense. Right. Well, it makes sense, right? It's like you're never going to get things right on the first shot. Like you learn by just doing things and then you improve. So when it comes to this site, how long were you developing it for? Uh, so I've been working on it for the past nine months and kind of started out with uh, just kind of like building the profile system. And like since like... I came from like a kind of entrepreneurship startup background, um, really kind of learned how to build like MVP uh, products. And so kind of just took the approach of like, I know these are like the bare bones of what I need and then kind of built uh, the rest off of like user feedback and uh, customer interviews and things like that. Nice. And those nine months, is that full-time development or part-time? Uh, so pretty much full-time. Um, I've also kind of been doing some consulting work on the side, but uh really kind of works out to working like 60, 70 hours a week uh, and kind of like 40 to 50 hours a week on industry link. Nice. And then you're the only developer on this project or do you have a small team? Uh, I'm the only one. Okay. So you mentioned working with Django and Python before in the past, before this project. Was that the main motivation for choosing Django for this project because it just was what you knew? Or is there like a specific part of Django that you were like, you know what, I did some research and you know, there's some things in this framework that really helped me out. Uh, so I'd say it was like 70, 30%, like 70, I was working at a company that 
was using Django. And so I was like, let me take advantage of like the fact that there's a bunch of developers here that know Django and I can ask questions too, if I have any problems. And so, uh, and I also knew Python, um, like going into it. And so I knew that I wanted to kind of learn a Python based, uh, like web framework. And I looked at Flask a little bit. Um, but then when I kind of compared Flask to Django and kind of also looked at the other companies, uh, that were using Django and, um, just like also the documentation around Django and uh, things like that, it kind of made a lot of sense to go with Django and, uh, kind of hadn't looked back since. Right. So one of the big things about Django is right. Their tagline is about like batteries included are using a lot of things that are built into Django in this project, like the admin. So I have like my system set up into like, I have a sales tool that I built and then I have the web application. So I used the admin a little bit on the web application, but on the sales tool I built, since it's mostly like an internal tool, um, I rely pretty heavily on the admin. And that's when I started diving into like a lot of the capabilities of the admin. Um, and so like just being able to run, like create actions, I'm um, in the admin. And so being able to like select a bunch of information and send it to like an email campaign or to be able to like enrich the data or push it to a CRM. Um, it made a lot of sense to just use the admin uh, just cause like there's a lot of useful tools that are built in that, uh, you know, you could build your own dashboard, but really the only benefit is it might be, look a little bit more pretty. Right. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort to create a really nice admin dashboard from scratch. You've mentioned having two apps here, right? That sales one and the main web page. Did this start off? Like, did you create the sales one first? Like how did this come about? Uh, so I created the sales tool second. Um, and part of the inspiration for that was like, I was doing some consulting work and I was like, let me build a system that I want to use myself. And then I can also use this in my consulting projects. And so uh, kind of like building a base that I can work off of. And so it kind of came like six months after I started uh, building like the web application for industry link. Okay. Do you maybe want to get into like the TLDR and what that sales app does? Because sales, like just as the word can mean like 85 million different things. I use it to like input uh, potential customers information and to like enrich some of the data. Um, and so using some like third-party APIs uh, to take a company's URL and be able to get some more information on them. Um, and also to be able to like look for emails, put that in there. Um, and then like from the sales tool, be able to push that to uh, different like marketing channels and different, so I have like multiple different uh, email campaigns that I have set up. And so I can push contacts into those email marketing campaigns. And then I can also push those uh, contacts into my CRM, um, or I can then push them into, uh, the web application, but I really wanted to keep the sales and like the web application, uh, separate just so that like there wasn't any issues of like data redundancy or kind of could mess around with the sales tool a lot more, not have to worry about breaking anything in the web app, like, because I was trying things out, uh, with the sit on the sales side of things. Okay. So like, if let's say I signed up your platform, then I would never be interacting with that sales app. I would just be going through the web app and that's it. Yeah. Um, and so people that are in the sales app can be in the web app, but, uh, don't necessarily have to be in the sales app to be in the web app. Yeah. So maybe you can just give us like a, like a high level overview of like, 
like what does your app do exactly like well not in specific details but like you know let's say i sign up for your service or whatever i'm clicking around like what types of things could i do and like what value does it give me yeah so it's kind of two-sided there's on like the employee kind of service industry professional side um they can create a profile and so um i was looking at like a lot of like so, like i'm not sure if you're familiar with like angelist or built in nyc where there's these kind of like hyper specific hiring sites that like allow you to build profiles and so like linkedin obviously has like a lot of advantages but i saw that there was an opportunity to like have a more focused community and like i also noticed that there's not a lot of like bartenders on LinkedIn, uh, things like that. And so um, wanted to give like bartenders, uh, service industry professionals, things like that, uh, the opportunity to like build a profile that allows them to like showcase their skills. And so um, they can like bartender chefs can put recipes that they have on their profile, um, also kind of have more specific skills uh, that are kind of tailored to the industry, like, like cocktails, beer knowledge, wine knowledge, things like that. Also, like a lot of people that work in the industry don't necessarily have computers. Most just like have a cell phone and things like that. And so also built a tool that allows people to take their profile um, with like their experience, education, skills, and things like that and generate a resume. And so then also on like the uh, kind of employer side built a applicant tracking system for them. So um, they can post jobs and um, not just like get a resume in, but also like move applicants throughout an entire hiring process. Um, and so they can like schedule interviews, uh, keep track of uh, where they are in the process. Also um, internally, they can leave notes and to-dos uh, for their team. Um, and so can, can have a more collaborative hiring process. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it sounds like you almost have like two independent apps right from like the hirer's point of view and the hiree's point of view with all sorts of good stuff uh, on both sides yeah and like the whole idea is like making that stuff work together really well and um, using like kind of profile information to make the hiring process uh, more informative and you know needing to spend less time like collecting information from people right so on the back end for this application is this one monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple of different services or do you even just use something like Django apps to categorize your code? Um, yeah, so I have it like the web application, just one uh, app and I'm using different Django apps to kind of break down the different uh, like services offered on there. Um, do you want to rattle off a couple? Uh, yeah, so I have like the recipes is one. Um, I also have like a utilities app that is like the notes and to do's are in there along with like uh, attachments for like photos or documents. Uh, I also have like a jobs app um, where like all of the like job postings, applications and interview uh, like functionality is have a separate one for uh, companies where the companies exist and then um, have a app for like users uh, to keep track of users and then like also kind of invitations to invite users lives in there as well. Nice. So when it came to that functionality with the user like invitation, is is that like built into Django or do you use the third party library for that? Uh, so I built something uh, myself for that. Uh, like one of the constant like questions is always like, 
looking at, there's like all these great libraries, uh, especially with Django. And so it's, but like at the same time, it's how much time do I want to spend learning this library? And like, I've ran into it a few times with this project where like I started implementing a library and then I noticed that a functionality that I wanted or needed didn't exist and that I would need to like rework a lot of the library to make that functionality work and then ended up just building something myself. Yeah, it's like that constant battle of like, is it faster to use something off the shelf and make it work? Or is it faster to just build something myself? And at the same time, like, can I learn something from building it myself? Right. Yeah, that's always a struggle. But when it came to like the basic user things, like, you know, creating a new user or logging in, do you use um, whatever is included by Django and then you build on top of that, like that extra functionality you want? Or is this like everything user related from ground zero you did yourself? Um, I'm, I'm using Django uh, all off for the uh, user authentication. And that also allows me to do like Facebook and uh, Google uh, login. And uh, Django all off has worked really well for me. Um, it was like a, a little bit of difficulty getting it up and running. But uh, now that I understand it, like how to use it and like kind of the ins and outs of it, it's been great. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. So if you had to like guess semi-high level here, like how many lines of code would you say your app has, give or take? 42,000 lines of code, including like HTML and uh, JS and Python. And that would be tests included as well, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, it's a healthy size app to build up in, uh, would you say, nine months? Yeah. And so like the breakdown, it's like 23,000 lines of Python, 16,000 uh, lines of HTML and like, 2000 of JavaScript. Uh, and that's like separate, like there is some JavaScript just like in the HTML templates. Right. So I think this next question kind of answers itself then like, are you just using Django server-side templates with a little bit of JavaScript here or there, or is it like an API backend? But I mean, with 2K lines of JavaScript, probably the first one. Yeah, so I started off with this app specifically with completely server-side um, and have slowly been like refactoring to move like more toward like including some like one page application like functionality um, and also like migrating a lot of like create like using Django REST framework to create some like API endpoints and um, like improve the functionality there. But uh, for the most part, like I try to use uh, server side render templates uh, when possible, but now like I have a better understanding of like JavaScript and jQuery. Um, like do when I see the benefit of being able to do that, I, I do try to build that out. Right. Are there some parts of your app that would really benefit from having like maybe a little bit more responsive of UI, like a calendar or something like that? Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think it, a lot of it like is on the kind of employer applicant tracking side, um, like really kind of want to make that a little bit more seamless. Um, and also just, I think in dealing with some of the data, it would be a lot faster to, than like loading everything um, at once. Like the, there are like kind of interview logs and things like that. And so to be able to just like load that for a single person rather than load that for everybody uh, that's on the page, uh, I think that like there's benefits there. Right. Is it also cases maybe where you have things like, you know, the employer selects something from a drop down box and that loads like some data on the right, but you don't necessarily want to do like a full page reload? 
Is it that, that type of stuff? Yeah, exactly. And so um, I've started moving towards that, but I still have a, uh, a long road ahead of me. Right. Have you run into any pain points or like problems trying to, you know, sort of migrate to that style of app? Uh, I think like I, not necessarily a problem, but like a concern is uh, like security and making sure that I'm not exposing any data on API endpoints. Um, just cause like, like I've done a fair amount of like web scraping and that's usually like how I end up figuring out data. It's just like from finding a random URL endpoint that just like has way too much data exposed. And so um, it's constantly trying to make sure that like I'm protecting people's data and not exposing too much. And that also the only people that are authenticated and should be seeing it like are the only people that can see it. Right. So does Django REST framework give you some tools to kind of like assist you in not shooting yourself in the foot? Like instead of returning back a user and then just giving back like every possible attribute on that model, right? Like things like if they're an admin, like when they were created, like all these things that you might not want to share. Does it give you a way to kind of like filter that down to only to make sure that the API returns the attributes that you want? Yeah. So they there's like a serializer um, that you can set up. And so I've got a bunch of different serializers set up depending on you know, the amount of information I want to return. And you can just select uh, what fields uh, you want to return and, uh, in the result. And then there's also like a pretty powerful like authentication um, and permission system that you can use. And um, more often than not, I found the problem being like somebody that should be able to see the data isn't able to see it rather than uh, the other way around. Right. I guess that's a good problem to have. Yeah. I, I, that's the way I'd rather have it. So for sure. So, you know, I haven't really looked at your app, but it sounds like searching would be probably a pretty important aspect of the site. Is that true or no? Uh, yeah. So I'm using um, Elastic Search uh, for the application. And then um, nice thing too is I'm using uh, Django Autocomplete um, for some like autocomplete fields, um, which has been really helpful. Isn't that so cool? Like, I don't know. It's like the idea of autocomplete was something that has been around forever. I mean, like literally inside of like a Visual Basic 6 IDE from like 1997 and on the web, like a couple of years after. And like, it still amazes me to get that autocomplete functionality where it's you just start typing, things pop up and like you select things and it's good results. Like, I don't know. Does that still blow you away or no? Yeah, because it was something I struggled with for such a long time. And uh, I was recently setting up like, a side project app and I wanted to use like autocomplete. And I think I set up an autocomplete field in like less than 15 minutes. That even kind of blew me away where I was just like, like it definitely wasn't that easy the first time I set it up, but uh, now that I know how to work it, like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, probably the first time, like, I don't know exactly in your case, but like the first time you set something like that up, like, you know, that's a multi-day adventure at least. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of like, even like I use Django like salary and I remember the first time setting that up. I think that like took me maybe a week to get working. Uh, and what I ended up, the problem I ended up running into was uh, not setting the right like variable name. And it was something that was literally changing one line of code uh, and was seven days of work. I will not make that mistake again. Nope. That's uh, definitely a lesson learned for life. Yeah. So Elasticsearch, did you compare uh, using that versus just using something like Postgres's full text search or like what was the thought process behind wanting to use Elasticsearch? I kind of looked at some different search options uh, when I first started looking at it and uh, it just seemed like Elasticsearch was 
the most powerful um, while also kind of being easier to implement, especially with some of like the Jan like Django libraries that exist. And so that's kind of like the, the, the like how I got to that decision. So maybe I also possibly took this for granted, but are you also using Postgres for everything else or no? Uh, yeah. Because it's kind of funny. I, I've had about seven or eight people on previous to you who are, it's like, I'm on a Django run right now. Uh, lots of folks on the show about that. And it's like every single one of them has used Postgres as their main like SQL database. Yeah, I think since I, I, my uh, app is hosted on Heroku and I'm pretty sure like Heroku only like allows you to use Postgres or at least like that's the, the way they recommend. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that in a few, but maybe for now we can just talk a little bit more about maybe the rest of your tech stack. So, you know, Elasticsearch and Postgres, are you also using Celery and Redis in this project or no? Yeah. Uh, and so I'm using that for like, a, for both like, like just doing async uh, tasks, um, just so that like not putting too much loading time in, in between a request, uh, like for sending emails and things like that. And then also um, for kind of like cron jobs. Uh, so things that are like further out. Okay. So you're taking advantage of Celery's periodic tasks then? The beat worker? Yeah, exactly. Nice. Uh, you don't need to get into all of them, but do you want to give us an example or two of like what types of things you're you're doing on a schedule? Yeah. Um, so like one of the things is uh, for new users, it's sending emails. Hey, you only filled out X amount of percent of your profile. Um, and so like with that task, he's making sure that, you know, seeing what additional information they should like, we recommend that they fill out and then sending like a email with those specific things in it. Um, and then also kind of sending some additional emails um, like on a kind of different days um, with some additional tips. Okay. And that first type of email, the one that just, you know, shoots them an email saying, hey, you know what, you can fill out this stuff in your profile and it's better. Do you have something like at the database level that keeps track of whether or not you sent that once just so they're not getting that like every time that schedule ticks over? Yeah. So um, I have like a notification app that uh, I built um, and that was one of those things too, where I started using like, Django notifications um, and it didn't have like all the functionality that I wanted. Uh, and so decided to build my own, but that was like really important to make sure that like I, to just keep track of like all the emails that are going out um, and if like they were delivered and things like that. So speaking of email, do you want to go over like what transactional email service that you use? Yeah. So I use uh, SendGrid. And so the way I got like, and I'm also using, um, I'm not using their API, I'm just using the like, Django uh, SDMG integration. And so uh, I, I went with SendGrid just because uh, initially like they had the best offering for like free emails, um, but I've really come to like enjoy using SendGrid. And they have like a lot of great functionality. Yeah, no, they're a very good service, very reliable. I mean. I I don't know their stats offhand, but I think pretty sure these they've sent like billions of emails out over the years. Yeah, no, they I have that number somewhere. Yeah, and there's a there's definitely like a lot more that I'd like to explore with SendGrid, and like it looks like there's a lot more that I can implement and make use of. But uh, yeah, I'm just using it kind of basically right now for uh, just sending out emails. Right. So this is something I probably should have checked before this call, but is this application paid for? Like, is there some type of subscription or one-off payments that you have to deal with, or is it totally free on both ends? Uh, so it's free for right now. Um, kind of what happened was right before the coronavirus, it was like two weeks before the coronavirus kind of shutdown happened. I was starting to launch. And uh, as I was launching, like all the restaurants nationwide shut down and everybody that would kind of be a client uh, 
suddenly had no need to hire people. And so, uh, you know, to kind of help get restaurant workers back to work and help restaurants uh, get up back to work, uh, decided to kind of make the service free uh, until everybody's kind of on a better foot. Right. Yeah, it's a very nice thing to do. And yeah, that is like the worst timing ever to launch a product during this, I think. Yeah, but uh, no, it's been good. Like the nice thing is, like have been able to help a lot of people recently with like either like that generating a resume um, or being able to look for jobs or hire people. Uh, so it's been nice to kind of be able to give back during this time. Yeah. Very cool. So when it comes to like the billing component, if that comes in the future, is that something you have coded out now or like partway coded out or just on the horizon? Uh, I have it like partway um, and with using Stripe. Okay. So are you going all out here at Stripe to use the payment intents from the get-go, like the SCA compliance one? Yeah. How has that been so far? Um, it was like a little difficult at first, but uh, like now that I understand how that all works, it's been it's been really great. Uh, and like their doc- documentation makes things uh, really easy. So yeah, I've been really happy with them. Nice. So when it comes to the payments though, is this going to be like a subscription type of thing or are there going to be one-off payments or even both maybe? Uh, the idea is to do uh, subscription-based, um, but there also is the potential to have like one-off payments. Okay. So in that billing platform that you're kind of spinning up now, are you accounting for allowing people to use like discount codes and coupons too or no? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Do you want to go over maybe a little bit like how is that implemented? Because I know with Stripe, you can kind of do it two different ways. You can either use their API or you can kind of just handle that stuff like specifically in your app. Yeah. So I'm using their API to handle the coupons. Right. I guess for a subscription model, that kind of works a little bit better because then Stripe can be like, okay, well, you know, this is going to be applied for X number of months. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I was also looking at, there's like a, it's like DJ Stripe. It's like a Django or it's like a library for like Django and Stripe and like was looking at potentially using that. The problem was like the documentation wasn't great. And uh, so like, and that was having like every record saved in the database. And so uh Right now, I'm just kind of using the Stripe API to keep track of uh, all that information. So, like potentially uh, at a later date, we'll kind of build in some of the functionality that like DJ Stripe. Yeah, the idea right now is to like minimize the amount of information I'd be keeping uh, kind of in the database. Right. Yeah, that could be handy in the future because I know when I build out some or when I build out some um, sites that have billing, it's like if a customer wants to go and take a look at like their billing history and you, you want to get like a list of invoice items. Like it kind of stinks having to call Stripe's API to get that information because then it's like, you know, that, that might take three or four seconds to get a response. Like it sort of is sort of nice to have that in your local database, but yeah, it is a lot more work because suddenly it's like, well, now you need a database schema to keep track of all of that and keep it up to date. Yeah. And it's just like the sheer amount of data you can store from the Stripe that like Stripe gives you. Like it's just so hard right now to know what information like I actually need uh, and like not building out a million fields uh, for stuff that I'll never use. Yeah, it's definitely a decision to make. I mean, I guess, like, I'm not trying to give you tips here, but like what I do in that case is I'll, I'll just save all of the response from Stripe in a JSON field in the database. And then like, that's my go-to. Like if I need this stuff later, it's there, yeah. but then I have my regular fields that I know that I want like right now. It's, it kind of works. Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like a great solution to that. Yeah. So before you mentioned that you are using Heroku to host all of this, what was the thought process behind that one? So I'd used Heroku before for like some other projects I had worked on. And I'd also like spent some time messing around with like AWS and things like that. 
Um, and it really came down to like the amount of time I wanted to spend messing around hosting. Um, and Heroku just seemed to like have the best uh, UI for just like handling all of the like hosting. Um, and so it's just been really easy to like spin up things and change the service uh, where like with AWS, it was just like a lot to handle. And so since I'm like the only person working on this, I try to minimize the amount of things that I have to be working on at any given time. Right. Yeah, no, it's really hard to beat Heroku when it comes to just getting something up and running as fast as possible. Like, I guess one question I could ask you is like, how much time do you think you spent? You know, you, you said you spent about nine months building this thing. Like of, of that time span, like how much was spent just working on getting it deployed, you know, like available on some domain name? It was like not much time at all with Heroku. Like maybe like two to 5% of my time is spent managing kind of the Heroku side of things. So do you want to like maybe go over what type of specs you have that are running on Heroku? Like how many dynos and workers and the performance qualities of those? Yeah, so I have two dynos uh, running, one for salary and then one for uh, the web application. I think I'm using like the $25 a month dynos for both those. Um, and then I'm using Redis uh, with salary um, and for Elasticsearch. And I think I'm using both the free versions of those. And um, I'm using like Bonsai Elasticsearch. I think I paid $7 a month for that. And yeah, and then I'm using like SendGrid, like I pay for that. But uh, other than that, I think like most of the things I'm able to use for free uh, with Roku. What about the Postgres one? I don't, I don't think you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm using like first paid version of the Postgres. Right. I don't know off the top of my head, but that one is sort of, pretty good, right? It's like a couple gigs of RAM, couple CPU cores for like 50 or 60 a month, I think it is. Yeah, it's like, it, it works perfectly for what, what I need it for. Right. So you mentioned that you have the two dynos set up, one for the salary worker, one for the web app. Does that mean every time you deploy your app, there's like some amount of downtime for a couple of seconds? Not necessarily downtime, but like it, it might take a little bit longer for like a page to load. But uh, yeah, it's a nice thing about like Heroku's like, there's not a lot of downtime uh, like when I am pushing uh, changes. Right. So maybe maybe you can shed some light on this one. Doesn't Heroku have that one feature, something around like preloading a dyno? And it might only be for like the higher cost one where you can kind of eliminate that downtime just by still having one dyno. I guess that's what you're using. Yeah, I think so. I can't remember right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, the nice thing is that like it hasn't ever been a problem for me, like downtime. Right. Uh, if you're comfortable sharing this, I mean, the prices are on Heroku's site, but like, do you know roughly like how much you're paying for this? I think it's about $100 per month that I'm spending. Okay. Now, you, you also mentioned that you use the SendGrid add-on, but then you're also just connect to it through like its SMTP servers through Django. Like, what does that Heroku add-on that you pay for offer you that just connecting directly doesn't do? I think it's pretty much the same as if I were to connect. It was like, it was just initially um, when I was setting it up, uh, it was like, I could just like, click a button and it completely set up the uh, account for me. And then uh, I think it's billed through like the same invoice um, as Heroku. Uh, so it's nice to have everything kind of like itemized on one invoice and everything built together. Nice. Yeah. So it's like that, that one meme picture of like push button, receive bacon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, my big thing is just like keeping things as simple as possible and trying to keep everything in one place. Right. Well, speaking of that, then maybe we can go into things like logging and metrics and error reporting. Do you have other add-on apps for that, or is it just 
like all pipe through Heroku's web UI that they give you? Yeah, so I'm using um, Century for like error uh, reporting, and then I use Paper Trails uh, for just to be able to look through uh, logs. Nice. And for both of those, is that the free tier or? Yeah, I'm still I'm still able to use the free tier for both of those. Okay. Do you know offhand like what the limitations are for the free tier when it comes to Paper Trail? Like how many events per month or retention or whatever? I don't remember specifically, but I know that I'm like getting kind of close to like just the amount of volume that I have that like there are like towards the end of the day, I get something that's like you're done with your free uh, logging for today. Uh-oh. That's uh well, maybe that's a good problem to have. It means you're growing. Yeah. So I, I might have to upgrade to it, uh, the paid version. Uh, right. So speaking of traffic though, do you want to go over maybe like what type of traffic you're dealing with here? Like how many page views do you get per month? Things like that. Yeah. Um, so right now have about a thousand users on the site and I'm getting like about 6,500 page views a month. Nice. And of those thousand people who are on the site, do you find them, you know, coming back just to check things out on a semi-regular basis? Although maybe not so much now because of COVID, but in theory. Yeah. So it's like about, uh, like half or like, uh, like about 500 returning users a month. Um, and that also just like kind of depends. Like the, the other thing with it kind of being like a hiring platform is uh, it's like people come back when they see jobs uh, live and things like that. Right. Yeah, right now we're recording this at the very end of May 2020, but it, it will be interesting to see hopefully in a couple of months if, if things get back to normal for restaurants at least. Yeah, no, like I'm, I'm excited for uh, the future and now especially that things are opening back up again. Uh, it's exciting to see the everything kind of clicking into gear. Yeah. So maybe now we can switch gears and talk a little bit more about, that was a bad one, uh, talk a little bit more about like your deploy process. So I think, you know, a lot of us know with Heroku, part of their motto, right, is just like, get push and like you're done. So, but can you walk us through maybe what it's like to, you know, build a new feature and, and actually have it up and running in production step by step? Yeah. So I'm using uh, Docker um, for th this app. And so uh, like right, like when, before I like I push a new change, um, like it's running the test, making sure everything's working. Um, and then like, yeah, just using the, the git, git command line to push the stuff to uh, Heroku. Okay. So do you also push this to maybe like a private GitHub repo or GitLab or somewhere else first or no? Yeah, I, I push it to like a private, like my private uh, GitHub repo, on my GitHub account. Okay. Have you looked into maybe setting things up to where it's like you push code to GitHub and then GitHub pushes the code to Heroku, or do you kind of just push it to different origins, like manually twice from the command line? Uh, yeah, I usually just do it manually twice, but uh, probably shouldn't look into doing it, like making it a little bit more uh, automatic. Right. Do you find yourself running like a test suite beforehand before you push any code or commit it? Yeah. So I run like all of my tests before I push anything uh, just to make sure everything's working. Right. And when it comes to like the Python side of things, are you using PyTest or a different library? I'm just using the like uh, tests within Django and like all the tests that I built. Okay. Yeah. I'm not too familiar with what they use by default. I wonder if it's PyTest. That's like one of the more popular testing libraries for Python. Well, here, let me ask you this. Do you have like a conftest.py file in your test directory? Uh, no. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's one of like a telltale sign of using PyTest. Okay. So going back to like your deploy process, you know, you mentioned that you kind of just get push your code up there. 
how do you deal with secret management? Like, you know, email credential, API keys, Stripe keys, and things like that. Um, so like the nice thing about Heroku is that they have the, like, you can set the variables in, um, like the backend, like of their dashboard. And so that's what I use for, um, like production, like handling of secret uh, keys and things like that. And then, um, I use, uh, like Django and Viron get ignore, uh, like the environment, uh, variables, uh, for the testing. Okay. So that, that library Python, would you say Environ or something like that? Yeah. Django Environ. Okay. Does that just like read a .env file from your local file system and use that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about how you might be dealing with disaster recovery and unexpected events. Like are you using any features from Heroku to do like automated database backups or do you just run those on a schedule yourself? Like, um, so I'm using a salary like periodic task to, uh, save the Postgres database. And then when it comes to like the Elasticsearch data, do you even bother backing that up or that doesn't really matter because it just comes from Postgres anyways? Yeah. I don't really bother with backing that up. Okay. What about, uh, like user uploaded files? We kind of didn't go into this, but I mean, do people upload like avatar pictures and like screenshots of recipes or whatever? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of like user uploaded images, and then there's also some documents as well, like resumes. And so I'm using S3 to store all those documents, and then I like automatically um, like back up those uh, images. Okay. So on the Heroku side, do they give you anything interesting for getting like alerted if things go wrong? Like if one of the Dino's CPU is going too high, or maybe you know the website isn't responsive. Uh, yeah, like it hasn't happened in a while, but they are really good about like sending uh, those type of notices. And um, like also if like, like the, what's the SSL like certs like aren't working, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it's just nice to not like have to implement all that by yourself and kind of have it right out of the gate. Right. Now, speaking of SSL certs, I guess Heroku is in charge of creating those certificates for you. Yeah, they automatically manage all of those, which is really nice. Yeah, very nice for sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what they use internally. I'm, I would imagine probably Let's Encrypt, but yeah, there is a way to get emailed if that cert is about to expire. Now, you mentioned that, you know, you haven't got a notification in a while. Do you recall what happened, you know, some time ago when you did get alerted for something going wrong? Uh, I think it was for like, like memory usage on like the salary uh, worker. And I think that's when I had to like go from like the $7 plan to like the $25 plan. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? I think it's like definitely like in doing research um, before kind of deciding to implement something and also just like when problem solving, um, like how to go about finding the best answer. Um, a lot of what I figured out was like, especially when looking at Stack Overflow, uh, it's like not looking at the most upvoted like answer and just going with it, but kind of looking into the comments of it and seeing like what people say. Cause like, there's like, what I find is there's always somebody in the comments being like, this is a bad solution and like why. And so, uh, it's kind of helpful to like, even if you do go with like the most upvoted one, like have a better understanding of like why you decided to implement that. Um, or like there might be some like edge case that, you know, doesn't apply to like 90% of people, but like you're in the 10% of people that it does apply to. Um, and so, yeah, I like, I've just learned to spend a little bit more time researching and then kind of like looking at the comments and, you know, different, looking at different, uh, possible implementations. 
And I think, you know, kind of to tag along uh, that, it's also kind of judging whether to use libraries or kind of build um, yourself. And uh, like uh, initially, like I would, when I first started, like I would always kind of be like, oh, there has to be a library for this and default to using the library. But kind of as I got more comfortable with like building things and working with Django, um, I kind of found myself being like, oh, I can build this a lot like leaner and faster and like a lot better suited for my needs uh, to just build it myself than to try to like use this library. And like also then to have to worry about like dependencies in the future and like, is it going to be maintained and things like that? And so uh, I think those are probably the big, two biggest takeaways like from this project. Yeah, both of those are, are really good advice. So I'm in the same like ballpark as you, right? Like I would much rather, I don't know, write 200 lines of code that I wrote and have tested versus pulling in some third-party dependency that's like, you know, maybe thousands of lines of code, possibly unmaintained. And maybe it's a good library, but it just does things that, you know, I don't really need to do. Like, it, yeah, it just becomes much harder to reason about. Of course, there's like a fine line, you know, sometimes it makes sense to use a third-party library. Oftentimes I do, but yeah. And overall, uh, I'd rather write a little bit of code instead of just playing in another package. Yeah, just to add on that too, I think like you can still learn like a lot by looking at those uh, like libraries. And like I spent recently like a lot more time digging into like the actual like source code of libraries and looking how they have things set up. And I've learned a lot from doing that. And so I think especially people that are learning, um, there's a lot to be learned from like implementing your own solution and learning from how other people uh, like, implemented it. And so um, I think if like, it, it all depends on kind of like what your goal is. If you're just trying to get something built as quickly as possible and not really concerned about like learning, then like most of the time it makes sense to use a library, but uh, you're kind of like in the learning like process. Um, like I would definitely recommend like building yourself uh, rather than just like blindly going with the library and trying to implement it. Right. And yeah, going about looking at other people's code is an amazing thing to do, especially, you know, if it's a decently popular library, uh, up on GitHub, it's like, it's almost like the answer book is right in front of your face, right? It's like you just look at the code and maybe some tests and it's like, this is how it can be implemented. So I love that idea. And I feel like, yeah, if you're sort of new and even if you're experienced, sometimes it's a little bit, uh, you know, you might second guess yourself like, oh, I can't really look at the code because it's too complicated. But if you just take it one step at a time, you know, you can figure out almost anything just from looking at the code. Yeah, I mean, that's helped me like understand how to build things like a lot more like modular too, um, and just like thinking a little bit more high level rather than like the immediate problem. Um, and also just like think ahead a little bit more of like, okay, like this is the problem I'm trying to solve right now, but I know that in three months, six months, a year, like these are the potential features I might have. And like, these are the ways I might need to interact with like this data model that I'm building right now, or this like feature that I'm building right now. Um, and so kind of like these libraries are built to be able to like interact with uh, all different types of models and things like that. And so uh, it just like really helps in that way. Yeah, for sure. So Colin, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, no, it was a really great talking to you. Yep. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? I'm not too active on social media, but uh, definitely if you're interested in checking out the website, uh, it's industrylink.com. It's spelled N-D-U-S-T-R-Y. L-I-N-K uh, dot com. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, 
Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.